According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs 18, we're still looking at verses 1 through 9, the opening paragraph, the opening portion of this chapter. Proverbs 18 begins with nine verses of social dysfunction. Each verse is a problem. Each verse reflects um, rebellion. Believers that choose to not live God's wisdom, choose to do their own thing. Starting with verse 1, he who separates himself. You, have, uh, you always have people that want to do their own thing or go their own way or they think they know better than God does and, and so off they go. And they are self-separated and uh, seeking their own desire when we're supposed to be seeking God's desire and pleasing Him. In, uh, and functioning in a body, functioning in community. None of us is designed to be the lone wolf out there doing our own thing. So he who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. And then uh, takes it upon himself to, uh, to be the arguer, the, the one that quarrels. And so that's what starts us off. And like I say, nine verses uh, are all dealing with, with these kind of things. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father's blessing upon our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the blessing we have this morning to assemble together. We call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, to give us ears to hear, and a heart, a softened heart, Father, to receive the word implanted. We thank you and we do praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so really we have point one and all the subpoints, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, under uh, subpoint one, and that'll get us through these nine verses, and then we'll move on to point two. Uh, when we are ready to study our defenses. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, we're told in verse 10. Uh, not the Lord himself, but the name of the Lord. And uh, we'll, we'll describe the, uh, the impact of that when we get to that point. We're not quite ready for that. We're still in the, the midst of these first nine verses, really looking at verse 4 this morning. The, uh, the words of a man's mouth. Uh, I think we got through verse 3, did we not? We were looking at reproach and disgrace and scorn. Um, somebody remind me, did we get through C, 1, 2, 3? All right. So when we're looking at public wickedness here under subpoint C, public wickedness generates a degenerative sequence of public harm. And we have a, a chain, and it rolls downhill in a sense, from contempt to dishonor to scorn. And uh, these things that we see in verse 3, when a wicked man comes, contempt also comes. That word contempt came up in the news yesterday too, by the way. I thought, well, that's kind of fun. going to hold uh, this man in contempt of Congress for the mouthiness that he uh, had uh, towards uh, the people asking him questions there in the House of Representatives. Um, so contempt and then dishonor, and then scorn. And that's the chain of things. So when the wicked man comes, contempt also comes, and with dishonor comes scorn. And we have that chain there in verse 3. And so we took a look at the Hebrew word buz, B-U-W-Z, that speaks of contempt. 
this public contempt, that's the fear of exposure, the ridicule when people find out about your sin, and the embarrassment that comes about it in the, uh, the public wickedness, the public contempt. Secondly, cologne is the Hebrew word that speaks of the shame and the disgrace, both in a personal and public context. And this is the thing where we just get gratuitous with it. The carnal mind just flaunts it, throws it in people's face, and they no longer have the capacity to even be shamed when their conscience is so seared. That's uh, ultimately what hardness of heart will lead you to, is a place where you can't even be shamed anymore because you're too busy publicly flaunting it and displaying your sin for what it is. And then the pinnacle is the Hebrew ver- uh, noun cherpa, C-H-E-R-P-E-H. And cherpa uh, is used 23 times in the, uh, or I'm sorry, 73 times in the Old Testament. The Strong's number is 2781. And this is the ultimate. This is the shame to the point that nothing could be worse. Reproach, disgrace, scorn, nothing at all could be worse. It's the, it's the most unimaginable pinnacle of bad things in life. Like in the ancient world for a woman to not have a child. Uh, in Genesis 30 was the, the ultimate herpa because Rachel did not have a child and, and Leah had four. And, uh, and that was just horrible. All right, so we dealt with those. Ah, that's right. Nothing could be worse for women or for men. Nobody could be worse. And this is where, uh, when we look at Job 16.10, Job 19.5, that's where we ran out. We did not yet look at Psalm 22 or Psalm 69, so we can look at those. Let's just pick up there um, uh, with Job, Job 16. And so hopefully we'll pick up... uh, where we left off and not lose our train of thought. Job 16 and verse 10. A couple of herpa uses in the book of Job that speak of this utmost contempt. All right, so Job 16, in the midst of his friends that are pretty pathetic, <laughs> uh, when Job answers at the beginning of chapter 16, He says, I have heard many such things. Sorry, comforters, are you all? Is there no limit to windy words? Or what plagues you that you answer? And uh, and he's right. They showed up not to help him at all. Ostensibly, that's why they were there. But really, they showed up to condemn him. And uh, every word out of their mouth was condemnatory against him that he was somehow at fault for for his afflictions. And uh, he says, I too could speak like you if I were in your place. I could compose words against you and shake my head at you. It's pretty easy as a human being. You can be critical of other human beings, and uh, that's easy enough to do. All right, so then uh, we get further down into his complaint here, and he says in verse 6, If I speak, my pain is not lessened. If I hold back, what has left me? But now he, that's God, has exhausted me. You have laid waste all my company. You have shriveled me up. It has become a witness, and my leanness rises up against me. It testifies to my face. Verse 9, His anger has torn me and hunted me down. He has gnashed at me with his teeth. My adversary glares at me. And, and so he's blaming God. God is the one that's doing all this to him for no reason. Verse 10, They have gaped at me with their mouth. They have slapped me on the cheek with, and here's our herpa. And so they're emboldened. They're emboldened. Be, his enemies are emboldened because it's God Himself that's afflicting Him. 
They have slapped me on the cheek with contempt. They have massed themselves against me. God hands me over to ruffians and tosses me into the hands of the wicked. He's talking about his three friends here. He's calling them the ruffians and that uh, the utmost of the contempt. Nobody could be worse. Nobody could be going through these things. That's the chapter 16 application. How about in chapter 19? Again, it's a response to his critics. So Job responded, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? These ten times you have insulted me. You are not ashamed to wrong me. Even if I have truly erred, my error lodges with me. So even if he was guilty, it still doesn't justify what they're doing these ten times to wrong him like this. Even if I have truly erred, my error lodges with me. If indeed you vaunt yourselves against me and prove my disgrace to me, that's the herpa, prove my disgrace to me, know then that God has wronged me and has closed his net around me. And so when he's at the the depth of his shame here, he's just throwing it back at his critics saying God's the one that has done this to me. So these are the uses here. And this is why we want to obviously be warned against such things in our life. Now when we get to Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, we have Davidic testimony to experiencing these things, but we also have prophecies as they apply to Jesus and his death. Psalm 22. And then these are some of the most profound of all scriptures because David wrote these a thousand years before Jesus. A thousand years BC. And here's David experiencing the cross. He experiences crucifixion. He experiences what Jesus experiences. And, and we don't understand uh, literally how it could have happened. We don't think literally it did happen. But in a vision, it very well could have happened that God brought David forward in time and allowed David to experience what Jesus experienced uh, on the cross. And so David cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And these are the very words that Jesus cries out when he's on the cross. Jesus is quoting David. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 as, as he's being crucified. But a thousand years earlier, David preceded him in this experience, in, uh, I believe, a vision where he was allowed to see the, uh, the work of Messiah. So he says, far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. We don't know how long the experience was for David, that if it was truly a day and night uh, endurance uh, issue, uh, it very well might have been. For Jesus, it was three hours uh, in sunlight and then three hours in darkness when the darkness descended at high noon uh, for our Savior there on the cross. Oh my God, I cry by day. Verse 3, yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And this is where David had the victory, where Job failed. Because Job had his lament and then blamed God for uh, attacking him. David has his lament, but then praised God for being holy and trusting in God no matter what, even with the experience uh, that he's going through. So he says, yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, in you uh, they trusted and you delivered them. 
to you they cried out and were delivered. He says, in, uh, in you they trusted and were not disappointed. God will always be the appropriate object for our faith. We can always trust in God, always place our faith in God no matter what. And then whatever He chooses to do in answering that prayer, maybe He'll end the test, maybe He'll continue the test, maybe, uh, maybe we're going to die, that's fine. He's still faithful through every test that He calls for us to do. Then verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of man, that's a herpa of man, despised by the people. And so again, I think the expression here demonstrates that it is the pinnacle. It is the utmost. There is nothing we could even imagine that would be worse than this. No experience could be worse. No mistreatment could be worse. No, uh, no abuse from our fellow humans could even be imagined to be worse than, uh, than the term herpa. It speaks of a pinnacle. It doesn't get any worse than this. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head. And uh, we go back and forth. As we read these verses, we have to remind ourselves, David experienced this a thousand years before Jesus experienced this. Commit yourself to the Lord, verse 8. Let Him deliver him. Let Him rescue him because He delights in him. This is how they taunted Jesus on the cross. Does God love you? Does the Father love you? Why does the Father not get you off that cross? Taunting and mocking in a terrible, terrible way. And so we have uh, this here. Now we can read the rest of Psalm 22. I, I uh, recommend that, but I'm not going to do that this morning. Let's go to Psalm 69. Psalm 69. Again, it's a Davidic psalm. Again, it's messianic. It's looking forward prophetically to the coming of Messiah. And you'll notice uh, repeatedly a long string of verses here in this. Uh, Verse 1 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. Is this... uh, this isn't a spiritual uh, context. This is uh, angelic conflict. He's not drowning, okay? It's not uh, physical water that he's, he's worried about here. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fall while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Okay? For some of us, that's a big deal. Never mind. Um, <laughs> those, we know David had a lot of hair. He was ruddy and he was attractive and yeah, all right. Though, and so he had a lot of enemies is what he's saying here. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal I then have to restore. O God, it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you. And so David's dealing with both. He's dealing with the unconditional or the, uh, the undeserved suffering of enemies that are wrongfully attacking him. On top of that, he also is dealing with a divine discipline for his own sin. And he's being upfront about that. He knows that he's committed sin. He knows that with Bathsheba, that was adultery. With Uriah, that was murder. He's not making excuses for that. 
So he's getting both at the same time. He's getting the divine discipline for his own deserved punishment. And then on top of that, his enemies, that are too many to count, his enemies are piling on above and beyond. So he's getting it on the left and the right. And uh, man, you think, okay, <laughs> here's a believer that needs a lot of grace, he needs a lot of forgiveness, and uh, instead he's, he's getting it piled higher and deeper. Now, so again, verse 5 is his confession. It is you who knows my folly. My wrongs are not hidden from you. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord of hosts. And that's what hurts the most. He knows that there are other believers watching him. He knows there are younger believers watching him. Other believers are watching. And and they, you know, they're trusting in the Lord. They're walking by faith. They're claiming the promises. But then they're watching David and his failures, and, and that could be a discouragement. That could be a that could be a stumbling block. They might look at David and think, what's the point in trusting the Lord if you're going to go through this anyway? And that hurts most of all. May those who seek you not be ashamed, those who wait you not be ashamed, and those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of hosts. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. That's our herpa. Dishonor has covered my face. And so here's the first of these uses of herpa. It's going to come back four times in this chapter. In verse 9, verse 10, verse 19, and verse 20, there's repeated and consistent use of herpa throughout this psalm. Verse 8, I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. This is true for David, this is true for Jesus, this is true for many other types of Christ. Obviously this was the case for Joseph with his coat of many colors and the brothers that hated him. Uh, This is true for David and uh, the brothers that hated him. This is true for Jesus. Uh, His brothers didn't even get saved until after the resurrection. Then uh, then he appears to them in the resurrection and they respond and they they, uh, actually uh, believe in Christ to receive eternal life in the uh, the consequences there. So becoming estranged from my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me. Remember this verse? This verse gets quoted when Jesus is, is flipping over tables and throwing out the money changers, making a whip. This is the verse that gets quoted. And what does the rest of this verse say? The reproaches, the herpa, of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The utmost of shame, the utmost of disgrace and scorn and contempt, he was willing to accept it, Jesus was, because he understood that ultimately they were rejecting God. They were rejecting God. David says the same thing here. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I, when I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. His very act of humbling himself becomes the scorn that they heap upon him as if he's wasting his time, as if uh, he's, he's wrong for what he's doing. So we see it there used in verse 10. Um, now there's other issues here. The uh, Verse 11 says, When I made sackcloth my clothing, 
I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me. I am the song of the drunkards. So when you become the, uh, <laughs> the song of the drunkards, when, uh, when drunk people are making up lyrics and you're the star of the, of the music, you know, you ever wonder what, in, what, what motivates a musician to write the lyrics that they write? And uh, how bad is it when they're writing that song and they're writing it about you? You know, uh, that's, uh, that's not good. And uh, this, is, this is David and his lament related to this. When we get down to verse 13, as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. And so no matter how hostile the enemies get, we just stay in prayer. No matter how long it takes, we're going to wait for his perfect provision. Um, if I'm impatient, I want to know why I don't have it yet. Why don't, why don't you answer now? Well, it's not the perfect time yet. We have to wait. It's at an acceptable time, a pleasing time. If he answers now, it's too soon. So deliver me from the mire. Do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. These are all the, the metaphors, the water metaphors here for the, you know, surrendering to the angelic conflict. How easy would it be just to surrender? How easy would it be to, to quit struggling, to quit swimming, to, to quit keeping your head above water, to just just give up? Just stop, you know, just surrender to it, just drown. And, uh, and it's peaceful. You just go under the water and drown. And that's the metaphor here, that if, you're, if you just want to give up, just surrender to the angelic conflict, surrender to sin, surrender, just stop your Christian walk, stop going to church, stop praying, stop walking in the light, just surrender. And it's like the, you know, and the devil will lie to you and say, oh, it's so easy, it's so peaceful, you won't even feel a thing. And uh, that's, that's the metaphor here of surrendering in the, in the angelic conflict. Just sinking under the floodwaters. Verse 16, Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. <laughs> And he, he's, he's just going again and again and again with the same request over and over. Oh, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach. Here's more of the herpa. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Now in any of this, is he attacking the enemies? See, Job was throwing it in the face of the critics. Job was calling them names. Job was dishing it back to them. All David's doing, he's not addressing them at all. He's just constantly, constantly giving it back to the Father. Saying, how long, O Lord? Quit hiding now. I have to answer me today. I'm running out of time here. <laughs> and then uh, verse 21, they also gave me gall for my food. And for thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Recognize that verse? That was also on the cross. That was also on the cross. See? So David went through these visionary experiences and they showed up in 
two of his psalms. They showed up in Psalm 22, they showed up in Psalm 69, and uh, we don't know how many years apart he wrote these two psalms, but in these two psalms we have this experience that was really a preview of what our Savior would go through as he's hanging on the cross. All right, well, so many more. Again, I recognize, I recommend that you read all of this psalm in its entirety, all the way down through verse 36, and you'll see the pattern there. Okay, well, that's the chain from uh, verse 3. Let's move on to verse 4, Proverbs 18, 4. Let's talk about these deep waters, because we just saw the deep waters, did we not? We just saw those deep waters in uh, Psalm 69 and other contexts. We got more deep waters here. What does deep water represent? The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. So again, we have the language of deep waters. Now this is the uh, coming from the source of a man. This is not... uh, we, we are going to connect it in the realm of angelic conflict. We are going to recognize that these deep waters uh, are coming from a, from a hidden place. They're coming from a, a, a cistern. They're coming from a place where um, they've, they've grown stagnant. They're coming from a place where Satan and his motivation is, is working through us in a very ugly way. I think you'll see that. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters, but in contrast, the fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook, is a bubbling brook. So now we've got two things that are happening here in the poetry. Two things. We've got the the deep waters, we've got the bubbling brook. We have the words of a man's mouth, we have God's wisdom. And that's what's being contrasted. They're totally different. This is not a faithful servant of the Lord that's blessing others with his wisdom. This is a uh, bitter, uh, a bitter person that's not communicating God's wisdom, that's, uh, that's had a, a darkened heart um, pouring forth these things in, uh, in darkness. So deep waters are hard to reach and draw from. Being stagnant, they exhibit the poor condition of a wicked heart. Whereas the fountain of wisdom is a free is free flowing and clean, that's the point that's being made here. Now, admittedly, it's uh, not an easy uh, text to uh, to translate, and uh, even some of the rabbis will struggle with it. Some go so far as to make this a positive statement in the middle of nine ugly statements, in the middle of nine verses of dysfunction. They actually make this one stand out as a positive thing, and I think that's. That's not the correct way to handle it. I think you've you got to keep this one in the context of the verses around it and uh, also understand the stagnant, uh, the stagnant waters of this. If, if deep is trouble, just think stagnant. Think of a, think of a, of a, a well and it's so deep that uh, you don't have any way, you don't have a rope long enough to get down there. And, and if you do get down there uh, and you pull it up, well, uh, what's the how dirty is that water? What's the what's the condition of that water? In uh, in this, I think the same idiom comes up in chapter twenty. A plan, uh, verse five, a plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. 
In other words, it's so deep, how are you going to get it out of there? How are you going to expose it for what it is? How uh, You're going to need some believer with doctrine. You're going to need some believer that has insight in the Word of God to, to nail you, <laughs> to, to draw it out and find out what is it that you've been struggling with all this time. Can we, uh, can we be honest before the Lord? Can we search the Scriptures? Can we draw it out? And we have to draw it out because if it just sits in there, it's just going to poison you the longer you let it fester. Again, deep waters. Deep waters, if you surrender to it, <laughs> look out. If you surrender to it, you're just uh, not in a good place. Psalm uh, 64 and verse 7. Give you a couple more examples here. Is this the one I'm looking at? Uh, ah, it's verse 6. It's verse 6. All right, Psalm 64, hear my voice, O God, and my complaint, preserve my life from dread of the enemy. So more conflict, what does David do? Goes to the Lord in prayer, that's his secret weapon, <laughs> constantly going to the Lord in prayer. And um, hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers, from the tumult of those who do iniquity, who have sharpened their tongue like a sword, they aimed bitter speech as their arrow, to shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, and they say, who can see them? They devise injustices, saying, we are ready with a well-conceived plot. Their inward thought, notice this is the, the deep waters of these wicked people that are in the angelic conflict attacking David. We are ready with a well-conceived plot, for the inward thought and the heart of a man are deep. The inward thought and the heart of a man are deep. And this is the same language that's used for those deep, the words of a man are deep waters. And this is coming from a deep, ugly place. This is coming down from the core of uh, where these men are. Remember Jeremiah about the heart is, dece- is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And uh, you know, the whole concept of God looking upon the heart. You know, we know it for what it is. It's the omniscience of God. But then do we ever think about the fact that when he looks upon the heart, he's looking at the, the core of our ugliness? He's looking at the deep, dark places where, where sin just festers, where the water grows stagnant. That uh, to look at a heart like that and to, to make provision for Jesus Christ to come and give us a clean heart, give us a new heart. He has to look upon that ugliness. And so uh, we see the, the principle applied there. Thankfully, God's got his own arrows ready to go. <laughs> and uh, David's confident of that, that God's going to shoot at them with an arrow. And suddenly they will be wounded. So he's just trusting in, uh, trusting in the Lord and God's going to take care of that. Another example comes in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Uh, 
All right, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. If you get to Song of Solomon, you've gone too far. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Verse uh, 23 says, I tested all this with wisdom. I tested all this with wisdom. And this is part of Solomon's frantic search, trying to find uh, value, trying to uh, really uh, overcome his jaded perspective that life has no purpose, uh, going through a thing. And I think we all struggle with this. Different people at different times will throw up their hands and say life has no meaning and what's the point of even being here so in verse 15 he says uh, i have seen everything during my lifetime of futility there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs uh, his life in his wickedness and so what am i supposed to think about that and um, different things that he struggles with He says um, in verse uh, 20, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. That's actually, he's on target with that. Who is it that's 100% righteous for their entire life? Nobody. And yet that's what it takes to be the kinsman redeemer and that's what our Savior will fulfill. Also, do not take seriously all the words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. (laughs) Okay, I get that. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. So verse 23, I tested all this with wisdom and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? And this is, these are the terms when we talk about deep waters, remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? So I directed my mind to know, to investigate, to seek wisdom and an explanation and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. Well, he should know. (laughs) He had a thousand of them. He had plenty of those women that were uh, leading him astray into their idolatry. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. In any event, the key expression there is in verse 24 about remote and exceedingly mysterious. This is the expression. So when we're talking about the deep waters, we're discussing the deep waters, uh, the the words of a man's mouth are deep waters when he is not the bubbling brook of wisdom that uh, Proverbs 18.4 is dealing with then uh, we should be aware of what they are. All right. Being stagnant, they exhibit the poor condition of a wicked heart. And, and Jesus spoke to this. He talked about it's from the heart whereby uh, we, we can, uh, these words are coming from and we understand where the mind is. Matthew 12 and verse 34. You can learn the condition of a man's heart by listening to what he says. you brood of vipers. (laughs) 
Jesus sure did a lot of name calling. This was uh, a verse that came to my mind. The um, <laughs> got a friend that's not a very uh, absolutely pretty livid. Hates President Trump and and, and very uh, committed leftist and a lifelong Democrat and 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 um, she said, I don't think he can't be saved. He can't be a Christian because Jesus would never be a name caller. And, and Donald Trump keeps calling people all these names, you know, lying Ted, and and uh, he has names for all these people. I said, well, Jesus called names. And uh, no, no, he didn't. Well, okay. <laughs> Here it is. You brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And this is... Uh, this is what we're talking about in Proverbs 18.4. The deep water is coming from that mouth. It's not a good thing. It's uh, reflective of a long time festering in the darkness. Same thing in um, chapter 15 and verse 18. And here's the Pharisees all worried about the ceremonial cleanliness and cleansing. And uh, Jesus says it's not the things you stick in your mouth that defile the man. It's what comes out of the mouth. So if you notice up in verse 2, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And uh, Jesus was having none of that. Verse 11, it's uh, hear and understand. It's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. It's the reflection of that wicked heart defiled by that heart that's abiding in darkness. And down to verse 15, Peter says, explain the parable to us. (laughs) Are you still lacking in understanding also? I mean, this should be a no-brainer, Peter. What's the problem? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. So uh, those deep waters, those stagnant waters, reflective of this heart of darkness, reflective of a man that's not that's not uh, walking in the light, that's not living the Word of God, that's not speaking the truth in love. Because those, uh, those are the bubbling waters, those are the surface waters that bubble and spring forth. That's the, the free-flowing water that's clean and pure and uh, in, entirely uh, different than what these other passages are talking about. Ephesians 4.19 And you'll notice 18 and 19 here, the, uh, the darkened mind. Verse 17, this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding. Being darkened. And this is what it's about. This is what prolonged time of darkness you're not in the Word of God. You're not walking in the light. You're not abiding with the Father. 
You're just left in this time of darkness. And, and, and the sad thing is that the believer doesn't have to do that. The believer's got new options available to him. Why are we dwelling like the unbeliever? The unbeliever at least has no choice in it. That's, that's their fallen estate. So Ephesians 4, 17, 18, and 19 here. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And, and what, what's the effect of that? What's the effect of those stale waters and that hardened heart? Having become calloused, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. With greediness. I'm also suspecting that I wanted to give chapter 5 instead of chapter 4 here. Notice the, uh, oh no, no, that's the one I wanted. Yep, that's the one I wanted. The poor condition of the wicked heart. The poor condition of the wicked heart. And it's darkened in their understanding. Now, that's what we don't want. None of us want that. None of us want the A part of verse 4. The deep, dark, stagnant waters. We want the free-flowing, bubbling brook. The fountain of wisdom. The free-flowing and clean waters of that fountain of wisdom. That, that verse 4b speaks of. And we saw this already in chapter 10 and chapter 13 and chapter 16. Time and time again this has been the principle that Proverbs has given us. The free-flowing waters. Proverbs 10 and verse 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. That's not deep. That's not stagnant. That's not dark. That's, uh, that's a believer that's in the Word of God, that's walking in the light, that's so thrilled with the things he's learning, he just bubbles over with it. He can't wait to tell you about it. He wants to talk about it today and tomorrow and every day. Because it's bubbling. It's a fountain. And... Um, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. You see the difference there? Proverbs 13 and verse 14. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. So it's a fountain. It flows. It bubbles. It's, uh, it's, it's going to benefit others. It's not something that you're just keeping down deep. It's not something that you're... you're uh, holding in. You're not dwelling in the darkness to turn aside from the snares of death. You're just bubbling forth with truth. And you see a brother on the verge of something terrible, you're going to say something about it because the bubbling fountain is going to spring forth in, uh, in this beautiful way. A fountain. Chapter 16 and verse 22. Understanding is a fountain of life to the one who, ha who has it. It's a fountain. Bubbling forth. And I don't know why. Because <laughs> these concepts are so identical. I don't know why in chapter 18, instead of using the word fountain, why didn't it just render it fountain? Well, it did. The fountain. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. There it is. It does use the term fountain. The bubbling brook. Bubbling, springing forth, blessing to others in all these ways. 
Uh, Jesus speaks of this in John 4. In fact, I think he's quoting Proverbs when he speaks about this, promising this woman the blessings of eternal life in John chapter 4. And I wonder sometimes what happens when we uh, disable our fountain. <laughs> what happens if we're supposed to be bubbling and we stop bubbling? We stop flowing? We stop speaking the truth in love? How quickly do our waters go stagnant? You know, how quickly does it just pool? And maybe we still know a lot, but it then it pools and then it because it's not free-flowing. What, how long does it take before it starts to grow stagnant, before it starts to, um, as it just sits there in the, in the darkness? Uh, John 4.14, and, and it's curious to me, when believers that have had teaching and they stop living it, and then they stop discussing it, because if to discuss it would expose that they're not living it, and uh, and they're just not comfortable discussing it anymore because honestly they're not living it anymore, and uh, we still keep that doctrine of residency. We still have, thankfully, the, uh, the the word of God is is still implanted. But man, when uh, when the Holy Spirit convicts and when they repent and when they come back to the light again, it those first uh, you know it's like a rusty pipe. <laughs> the first few spurts of water, you want to kind of let the first let the gunk get out of there before it can start flowing clean again. I don't know. I have to run that by a plumber and see what he thinks of my metaphor here. But in John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to this woman and 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 I like the fact that he, he doesn't have a bucket or a rope and uh, she's a little bit uh, uh, dismissive. In verse 11 she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are we familiar with this? I think we're familiar with this. So um, this woman comes out to draw water. Jesus says, give me a drink. And she's shocked that he's even talking to her because uh, of the racial thing and the gender distinctions and all of this. Uh, why are you asking me? And Jesus says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And this is the, the blessing. She's positive. She wants to know about God. She wants to know about eternal life. She has questions about why, why uh, is the uh, Samaritan religion different from the Jewish religion and who has the truth. And um, she's willing to accept that it's Jewish if that's the truth and overcome her Samaritan uh, prejudice. She just wants to know what's the truth. And she says to him, sir, you've got nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? What a great question. So Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And so he gets to use this metaphor. And I believe he's drawing from all of these places in Proverbs we're looking at here today. He's drawing from the Old Testament and all of these passages that speak of the living water, to speak of bubbling, a clean, pure water. That once you're saved, you want to speak the truth. You want to grow in the Word of God. You want to communicate to others.
and uh, the, the uh, just really the the uh, the benefit of this in John four fourteen, so that not only do we have this water, but we are now conduits. We can now communicate the gospel to this lost and dying world. We can communicate truth to fellow believers. What a joy that we have in order to do this. John chapter 7. John chapter 7. And uh, this is a feast that uh, he almost didn't go to. This is, this is in the fall, September-October time frame of 32 A.D., this is within six months of his crucifixion. And uh, the Feast of the Booths is coming near and his brothers want him to go make a big splash. And, uh, and he is reluctant. The, um, the Feast of, of Booths is, is where uh, in the Millennial Kingdom Gentile kings will have to come and bow before the King of Kings. They're going to have to come and bring tribute to Jesus Christ on the throne of David. But his brothers want him to go. Uh, they say, uh, leave here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you do these things. You know, they weren't really paying much attention, were they, to all the miracles that he's been doing in, in Galilee. If you do these things. Show yourself to the world. Go hit the big time. You know, yeah, you, you might be a star here in Galilee, but go hit the big time in Jerusalem. For not even his brothers were believing in him. You see that? They don't get saved until after the resurrection. And then in verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. So since they're not saved and they're citizens of this world and, and uh, they, they can go up and have a great time at the feast. He goes up and there's going to be conflict. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. So he stays in Galilee. They go up. But then in secret, verse 10, he goes up secretly. He goes up privately. He doesn't make a big splash. He slips in partway through. It's a seven-day feast, so he's got time. And uh, before he announces himself, there's a lot of hubbub, there's a lot of whispering. The Jews were seeking him and saying, well, where is he? And they're grumbling and they're arguing. Verse 12, some say he's a good man, others say no, he leads people astray. But they don't want to publicly come out with it because hostility by the religious leaders. That's what verse 13 says. Finally then, he comes out in the midst of the feast, in verse 14, he finally enters into the temple and begins to teach and just astonishes everybody. Verse 15, the Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? How does this illiterate carpenter know so much doctrine? And then this is the vocabulary from this verse, verse 15, that, um, I don't know, when... If we're going to give our seminary a name and create a nonprofit corporation and get a website going, um, I want to kind of name our, our Bible college based on this because we're imitators of Christ. This is how we're growing. And, uh, you know, 
when uh, when we graduate a man and ordain him and he goes and he uh, pastors a church somewhere uh, I'm sure there's going to be critics that'll say well he's never been educated he's unlettered he doesn't have PhD after his name from Dallas Seminary or THM or whatever else well praise God that he works in this way all right well I'm headed down to, to verses 38 and 39 I just wanted you to have the the context for this. This is the feast where, uh, where he's speaking these things, where he's uh, discussing his imminent departure. Uh, the crowds are convinced that this has to be the Christ. Uh, in verse 30, they were seeking to seize him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than this man has. This, this guy's got to be the Messiah. They can't imagine somebody else doing more miracles. And uh, so the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And they can't arrest him either. Because uh, it's just uh, amazing the things that he's talking about. Verse 37, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The metaphor being get saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The metaphor is drinking of the living waters or eating of the living bread, the bread of heaven. Here it's drinking from the living waters. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, obviously you get eternal life, you're saved, we get that. But more than that, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. From his innermost being from the core of his heart, from where as an unbeliever he was dark and the waters were stagnant and those deep waters were just full of darkness and vile. You get transformed. You get saved and you get a clean heart. You get uh, the, the glories of what only God can do in and through you for his good pleasure. From his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And by this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is a positional truth reality that applies to the church age. This, this I mean, we see it in, in Proverbs from an Old Testament perspective, but in the New Testament now, when we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, and we have the chance to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, how powerful is that? It's a beautiful thing. We'll close with Colossians, Colossians 3 and Colossians 4. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Be the bubbling brook, don't be the stagnant uh, cistern, that deep water. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Be the bubbling brook. Be the fountain. Don't be the the deep stagnant water. Chapter 4 and verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you'll know how you should respond to each one. What a blessing that we have. All right. Well, we finished verse 3, we got through verse 4. Um, been a slower chapter than I thought it would be. We, we'll, next week we'll come back and we'll see how well we can do with 5 through 9. 
getting through uh, this early part of Proverbs 18. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your truth, for your faithfulness. I pray that uh, we understand the metaphors for what they are, that we don't lose sight of truth by getting lost in the image, Father. The, the, the picture is pretty, uh, pretty vivid if it comes to the deep waters and the, and the, uh, the, the stagnant, spoiled, poisoned nature for what they are. But then the, the bubbling brook, the fountain, the free-flowing water that is pure and clean and a blessing, the, the joys that we have in Christ to be able to speak the things that we learn. I pray, Father, that we can uh, take this imagery and, and make personal applications, that we, uh, that we, bubbly, we be bubbling ourselves, speaking the truth one to another, uh, always delighting in, uh, in, in what we're learning from you. Thank you for this blessing, Father. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.